The top leadership ranks in government are less diverse than the federal workforce overall, both by race and by gender. New findings from the Partnership for Public Service show that although diversity in the senior executive service has increased in the last 25 years, there's still lots of room for improvement. To add to the list of concerns, the majority of career SES employees are also getting close to retirement. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman got details of a new SES report from the partnership's president and CEO, Max Steyer. I think there are two things that changed over time, and it's very helpful to see the, the 25 years of data here. Um, one is that you do see fewer younger folks in the SES today than you did certainly in 1998 and in earlier years. And the second, as you said, the retirement eligibility numbers are much higher, and uh, that's a problem. I mean, more broadly speaking, you can look at various elements of diversity here, and we're seeing less diversity, as we just noted in the generational realm, and we're seeing increased diversity in the racial and gender makeup of the of the SES, which is good, but still underrepresented against the general population of federal civil servants and of the public. Speaking a little bit more about those demographics, about uh, gender and about race in the SES, why is that something that is significant or important to change? It's true in all organizational contexts that diversity of all kinds improves performance. And certainly uh, gender and racial diversity is an important element of the broader question of diversity. So having you know a desire to perform at your very best organizationally, drawing from different experiences, different gender, different racial groups, different ages, um, all improves the ultimate outcome. Um, so that is one issue. I think there's an extra issue in the context of the public service, which is uh, as public servants and and as the primary responsibility being to be a steward of the public good, you know, having a government made up of a broad swath of our population um, is more representative of the people. And I think that's meaningful too. So diversity across the board, I think, is something that improves performance, improves the public's perception of public service more broadly, and is something that we should be keeping an eye on, which is part of the reason why we've done this, this report. And at the same time, I, one other thing I noticed from the report was that, you know, you have about 200 new SES members who are hired every fiscal year. Do you see that, you know, that combined with the number who are retiring or eligible for retirement, plus this kind of gap in diversity, do you see that as, you know, maybe an opportunity for agencies to, to change things? Yes, no question. The only um, friendly amendment I would make to this is that the SES would benefit from actually seeing more people coming from the outside into the SES. So, you know, 200 on average a year is not very many. Um, it is very important to grow talent in, within the government and to provide a pathway for high-performing uh, career civil servants to make their way into the SES. But having an inflow of consequence of talent from the outside um, improves the d- diversity as well. And I think multi-sector experience is extremely important. So, you know, one of the things that I would highlight here is, frankly, how few folks from the outside actually come into those senior positions. It is especially important in a world of huge dynamism. So when you think about it, again, you see some increase in the number of IT SESers, but just in the sphere of technology, um, being able to draw on best-in-class experience from the private sector at the senior most levels is frankly very important to the performance of our government and to the services that the American public is receiving. So in, in, in our view, we believe um, 
looking to improve the recruiting from the outside is quite important. Another part of that possibly is where the SES members, where the SES workforce is located. And, it, you know, one thing I did notice from the report is that a lot of uh, SES members, career SES members live and work in the D.C. area, whereas you have the broader federal workforce, about 80 percent work outside D.C., you know, that's maybe just a product of the fact that you have SES members working at headquarters offices. But do you see that as an issue or something that needs to change? So it's a very interesting question. Look, I think that most policymakers do not realize that, as you just said, 80 percent of the federal workforce is outside of D.C. The leadership of most agencies are in D.C. And I think there is a real benefit to having a concentration of leadership in one place. You know, the whole point of, of having a capital that was owned by no state, but was, you know, instead owned by the entire country was an important element of the front end of our, of our country to, to create something that was committed to the larger public good to the nation and not to an individual state. I think that there are reasons why having, you know, in a single location, top leadership able to be co-located is, is quite helpful, especially in a world where we need to see multi-agency collaboration in order to deal with big problems. At the same time, we have this phenomenon of the pandemic that created, you know, a, a, a explosion of remote work and the possibility of, of working from elsewhere. You know, to the extent that there's benefit to having SESers outside of D.C., now there's actually a mechanism for them to do that quite easily with remote work where their jobs permitted. And obviously it is a case by case question. So the underlying issue is I'm not really concerned that there's such a concentration of SESers in the D.C. area, I think the benefit is that you want your senior leaders to be interacting with each other across the organizational lines of agencies as much as possible, and frankly, more than currently occurs. You don't see very much movement among the SES from agency to agency, and that's a problem. And to the extent you want to actually enable more SESers to be outside of D.C., remote work might be the better way of doing it. The report also breaks down SES by occupation, and there's been a huge jump in the number of SES members in IT positions. Is this something that was surprising or telling to you, and what does this mean going forward for the federal workforce? You would hope to see the workforce shift and change, even at the, especially maybe at the most senior levels, depending upon, you know, the organizational needs that we have. And technology is plainly the most significant change aspect of the management world that we've seen um, over the course of the last 25 years. So you would expect to see growth in IT. And my question, frankly, is, has there been enough of it? I'm not sure that we've seen, uh, you know, the, the extent of the reshaping of uh, the occupational um, focus as, as we should. And uh, especially with the rise of AI, even beyond SESers who are in the IT occupational series, my view is that we should be exploring deeply the requirements of technology literacy that um, the rest of the SES who are not in the IT occupational series ought to have to really be effective leaders. Not just the SES, but certainly the SES as, as you know, the, the top of the pyramid. To be an effective leader in today's world, having that technology sophistication, I think, is, is, is fundamental. You talked a little bit about, you know, why you put together this report. But if you can tell me, you know, what are you hoping that agencies or maybe members of the federal workforce are, should get out of this report? What are you hoping that they'll, they'll take away here? The reason for us doing this is that the career SES, frankly, are the, the foundation for 
for our government. You know, it, it is, you know, some 7,000 people who are career public servants who are at the pinnacle of responsibility for managing uh, the services to the American people. And so understanding what's happening to them as a cohort is very important. The original concept of the SES was of this top level group of executives that would move across government to address our biggest and most consequential challenges. And uh, I don't believe that vision has played out and we need to return to, to that vision in order to, I think, have our government respond to the current set of challenges more effectively. You need to understand what you have. Um, that's the purpose of, of why we did this. So I would say that hopefully this will spur an enterprise perspective about what is it that we need and want out of our SES and what are the things that we can do to get there. Max Steyer is president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service, speaking there with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage 
all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, th describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have 
multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. That's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can it's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. Matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.